Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to hear some of the recent guests who have appeared on JM in the AM. We will start this week's JM Rewind with a uh, revisit of our journey to Israel. Yossi Klein Halevi joined us at the Inbal Hotel for an in-depth discussion about the uh, conflict in the Middle East and other very interesting topics. Yossi Klein Halevi was a recent guest of ours while we were in Israel here on this week's edition of JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Second day of our three-day adventure to the Holy Land. We are at the Lieben Presidential Suite uh, patio overlooking the old city of Jerusalem here at the Inbal Hotel, the beautiful and incredible Inbal Hotel, always our headquarters in Jerusalem when we uh, show up to do some broadcasting. In this case, we actually are doing our broadcasting from the hotel itself all through this three-day stretch. So we thank the Inbal Hotel profusely for their service and for their hospitality. And, of course, to the Lieben family, who we have inconvenienced much more than anybody ever thought we would, uh, we thank them for their patience and their hospitality. I'm sorry? Please leave. Could you please? <laughs> Barry's, Barry's quote from today's show, could you please leave? Uh, we have a, a more special guests no, all I'm through leaving. our... <laughs> you're leaving. All, uh, many special guests through our show, including the guest sitting to my right, Yassi Klein-Halevi, is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, served as visiting professor of Israel studies at JTS in New York in the fall of 2013, former contributing editor of The New Republic. I used to um, I used to jump with excitement when an issue of the New Republic would show up at my uh, mailbox. Oh, really? Yeah, that a yeah. National Review. Try to try to understand That's me. Exactly right. It, it should be that exactly way, right? It exactly. should be that way. Yeah. Uh, right to the op-ed pages of many leading newspapers, and his latest book is "Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor." In its first week of publication, the book made it to the New York Times bestseller list in the hardcover non-fiction category. Yassi Klein Halevi, shalom, and welcome to JM. Well, thank you. Wonderful to be here, and and I have to tell you, Barry, it's just fantastic to see you after literally 50 years. Yes, and I remember very well our time together in camp. I do too. I was present at the historic moment when you became a Beitari. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you were 15? Yes, I was 15. And we were, that's and it. And I remember telling you, yes, he moved to Israel and become one of the great scholars of the world. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> I do. So I take full credit for his entire career. Barry did say before this broadcast that you knew back then. Uh, of how great his intelligence was and how he could do this really, really well. Yes, he was always a brilliant young man. And I don't want to repeat any of the stories that will embarrass him, so I'm not going <laughs> I to. Feel, I feel like this is my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> just a tribute, just a tribute, not a he, funeral. He was always, I can tell you one thing, yes, he was always outspoken. Had an opinion. And, yeah, and he always had an opinion, and he never kept it to himself. So um, I'm not surprised uh, about his career. And it, it's so nice to walk in and see him. Well, it's, it's so mutual, Barry. Yes. I really, I, and I, I always, I always, I just remember having this great love and respect for you. Oh, when, thank when you. That's we very 15. nice to hear. And it's very mutual. And I, I followed his career all the time in the newspapers and his books. And it's so nice to see it. It's like old timers day here. <laughs> I'm waiting for Yogi Berra to come out. But I don't think it's going to happen. He won't be showing up. I next. don't think he'll show up today. Um, your, your political opinions would likely be the same as your fellow Beitaris or possibly somewhat different? Possibly somewhat different. Uh, it's interesting. My guess as well. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because in, in some sense, once a Beitari, always a Beitari. Even if your political opinions change, what Beitar did for, for us when we, were, when we were starting to 
think about our Jewish identity and our place in, 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 in the Jewish world was give us backbone. Because we were the eccentrics, the outcasts of, of Jewish life. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that at a time when, you know, we, we've had Likud governments for 40 years now. Right. But we, I, I, we were... You were we, the opposition. We were, we were the lunatics. Right. We were the joke. The fringe. And, and to, to join Beitar in the 1960s in America meant that you really didn't care what anybody thought about you. Right. Because everybody, your pe- from your parents to your, to, nobody could understand what what you were doing there. So right. what they either didn't understand or they hated you. Yeah, it was one of the alternatives. Right. No one said, "Oh, that's great." That's right. No, no. Or we respect look, your opinion. Look, right. we, we were the only. First of all, we were the only ones who didn't have a light blue work shirt or uniform. a t-shirt. <laughs> or a t-shirt. Right, right. You come home from summer and you're wearing this dark blue shirt with a light blue tie with epaulets, and your parents go. What the hell is that? <laughs> I say this this was what we wore yeah. in summer camp. <laughs> right. This is what we wore every Friday night. <laughs> so you, it's you're summer. absolutely right, yes. You're absolutely right. It, that's a great way to phrase it. Beitar, if nothing else, gave you backbone. And and every one of us is an individual. Mm-hmm. Right. So therefore, and you obviously knew what direction I was going in with my opening question, right. something either happened or certain personalities may have had some influence or maybe not so drastic an episode occurred that may have shifted your point of view somewhat. Yeah, Mayor Kahana had a big influence on me, but in a negative way. Uh, I graduated eventually from Beitar, like, like, like many of us, to JDL, and, and I was... Uh, part of of Kahana's world in America and then when he start when he came to Israel and uh, ran for the Knesset for the first time in 1973 I came here as a student and the first thing I did was you know show up in and volunteer for his campaign and then I saw that what the Kahana the Kahana that was emerging here was not the same Kahana that I thought I knew in America. It was, first of all, Soviet Jewry wasn't as interesting anymore. Right. In America, it was right. protecting and diaspora And people don't realize Jews. that he's responsible for putting that issue on the map. That's a separate issue. He's moment. one of those. There, it's, it's a more Does not get the credit he deserves, I think. But okay. it's, it's, nobody, okay. nobody got right. the credit they deserved, right. including Yaakov Bernbaum right. and Glenn Richter. Glenn Richter. You know, really. It wasn't solely Kahana. Oh, no, I'm not saying solely. Yeah. I think sometimes but he's he overlooked great, in that list. He did a great job. Yeah, sometimes I think he's overlooked. And so... When, uh, when I came here and, and I saw that what Kahana's direction was to become the, the leader of the farthest right-wing fringe and to really speak more and more, not about love of the Jewish people, but of hatred for others. And, and eventually hatred for Jews with whom he disagreed, even right. calling for the murder of Jews that he disagreed with. And so Kahana became my, my anti-teacher. In, uh, in 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 the dangers of uh, of uh, of extremist thinking. So the quote unquote American Kahana, in your opinion, was more about Jewish pride, Jewish protection, Jewish activism. Would that be accurate? Yes, with a big but, because I I do think today that there is a direct line between the Kahana that we saw in Israel and the Kahana in America. It it wasn't as as. In, Bolet, we say in Hebrew. How would you say bolet? Um, as uh, as as explicit, right. uh, it, there were certain tendencies, uh, undercurrents, a, a love of violence. You know, I, I, I 
I, I always felt that Kahana's motto was, or should have been, uh, why solve problems peacefully when you can solve them violently? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, violence is a first resort. I think he really loved violence. Yossi Klein Alevi is here. So you show up to work at his campaign. When does the love affair start to dissipate? Immediately. Immediately. The Yom Kippur War happens right. a few weeks after I, I come to Israel. And the campaign, the, the Knesset campaign, is, uh, is postponed till December. Right. And Kahana, who had been pretty much of a shoo-in uh, before the war, doesn't get into the Knesset right. and becomes a very bitter, aggrieved uh, uh, man. And, and uh, almost everyone who knew him in America broke, eventually broke with him. Do you remember 1985 when he tried to form a Dinati Huda? Do you even remember that was a very small, like, I don't know, yeah. maybe it lasted a couple of weeks, <laughs> an effort to literally take the Air Review down, make it separate? All, look, you know, this is, Kahana never understood the meaning of Jewish sovereignty. He never, he never and, and this is true for a lot of Jews, that, that you, he didn't understand that the rules are different when you're a sovereign country right. And when, than, than when you're a, a besieged minority. And he brought that same mentality and tactics from the streets of Brooklyn to, uh, to, to Israel. So that's why Gandhi, and in this case I mean Rahav Amzevi, that's why his message worked better because of his Israeli roots, or you wouldn't say that? Well, he didn't really take, you know, he, you he never took off him? politically either. Right. But, uh, no, there I, was look, a pla- and, okay, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I, <laughs> uh, Kahana actually sent me... Uh, when, when I was working on his campaign, sent me to try to recruit Yisrael Eldad, mm. one, of the, uh, the th- one of the three leaders of, of the Lechi. Right. And uh, the first thing that Eldad says to me is, under no circumstances am I going to have anything to do with that lunatic. And this was Eldad, who, should, you know, yeah, who had his own not, lunacy. We're not talking about a main street. <laughs> yeah, really. Where were you at the time? And we'll move on to a different topic in a moment, because there's so much I want to discuss. But where were you at the time of the Khan assassination? Uh, I was in. Uh, I was visiting France then. <laughs> you were in Europe. I, I heard the news. You were in, in Europe. Europe. You heard the news. Yeah. Funerals took place both in the U.S. and here, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. And the funeral here was a semi pogrom. Right, I remember that. People, people, f- funeral goers ran around looking for Arabs on the streets. People of to attack. To beat up. Right. Uh, your latest book, ironically enough, after discussing all this, is letters to my Palestinian neighbor. Right. Some people in this country find it difficult to interact with Palestinian neighbors. Do you find that? In this country, we're in Israel now. Correct. We're talking about Israel. Correct. Uh, yeah, I find it difficult to interact with, uh, with my neighbors, which is why the book is to an imaginary Palestinian. And I wrote this, I live in, and I live in the last, literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem. And I look out onto uh, Palestinian You're right near the 67 border. Say it again. You're right near the 67 border. I'm over it. You're over the 67 border. So, uh, but uh, on the next, literally on the next uh, hill are Palestinian mm-hmm. villages, and separating us is the security barrier, which in Jerusalem is a, is a wall. Right. In the urban areas, it becomes a wall. And so I, I've, I wrote this book to try to explain to the people that I look at, I look at their, their houses every day, and this is a book that attempts to explain who the Jews are and why we came home. Zionism for Palestinians and anyone else who cares to read it. From what sounds like a very positive standpoint. 
right? From a pot that they should understand the 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 desire or the the Absolutely. positive effect that this had on the Jewish people. Is it Absolutely. a big seller in the Palestinian community? I'm starting to get to get responses. Really? You're getting reactions yeah, from them. I am. I am not all of them negative and genocidals. <laughs> you know, not all of them. <laughs> um, I'm getting some really powerful letters back. Uh, that are a combination of anger and also saying something has to change. And uh, people who really appreciated the, I, letters, I got letters saying this is the first time that anybody ever bothered explaining this to us. One guy, a Jordanian, writes me a five-page letter in English. Most of the letters I get are, are in Arabic and I have to translate them. But he writes me that, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not Palestinian, but technically I'm also your neighbor and he's, he ends the letter with, and I'm, I'm quoting word for word, what the hell took you so long to start explaining yourselves to us? And that for me, if you want to sum up why I wrote this book, we, ex- we try to explain ourselves to Congress, to, uh, to European media. public opinion, media, uh, there's, an, there, there's a pro-Israel organization that opened up an office in China. Nobody has ever tried to explain who we are and what our story is to the Middle East. So there's Hasbara to everybody except our Arab neighbors. Exactly. And so the book has been translated into Arabic. It's available for free downloading. And it's an attempt to present my own very personal um, take on, on our story. And, and why, I, why I came here, but more broadly why we came here, and why the Palestinian narrative that, that dismisses us as a European colonialist intrusion is missing the, the, the key point about who we are. So I wrote it as a neighbor, and without any hopes, big hopes, I, I, you know, I know where I'm living, I, 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 I know, I know what, what, what we're up against. Does any of it seem valid to them, though? Does any of it seem excusable? Is our behavior, and I'll use that term for a moment, of the Israelis uh, and the way they perceive Israeli behavior toward its neighbors excusable based on what you write to them? Look, there's a tremendous amount of anger. You know, you have a generation that's grown up uh, that, that, that has known nothing but, uh, but military checkpoints and control. And so I explain to them in this book how I, who in principle support a two-state solution, right. how I live with the wall and, and I, there's a checkpoint just right. past the wall. It's right, right outside my window. Mm-hmm. How do I live with that view? How do I tolerate it? And so I, I explain what, what most Israelis take for granted, which is we repeatedly tried to make peace. And what we got back was the worst wave of terrorism in our history. And that's a story that most Palestinians don't know. And what I write in my book is I'm, I'm not trying to convince you that my narrative is right. But I want you to understand that, that there is another narrative here. There's another story that you're not getting in your media, in your schools, in your mosques. And that's the story of your neighbors. And so I'm offering this to you as a... Um, as a way of, as a window into into understanding us. Just as right. I'm looking out right. at you and your hill, you're looking at me, at my hill. You're looking at French Hill 
every day. Yes, Klein Alevi is here. Would you agree then, and you alluded to this a moment ago with the wave of terror after all these peace attempts, would you agree that in the Gaza Strip, for instance, that it, before the disengagement, obviously, uh, that in, the, uh, in certain areas of the quote-unquote West Bank, um, even in Palestinian slash Jewish neighborhoods or you know entities that are near each other, that before Oslo, before all these public attempts to create some type of peaceful solution that would end up in what you describe as a two-state solution, there was much more peaceful coexistence between Arabs and Jews. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, you know, I, I I need to qualify that statement because I'm not. A, a an advocate of annexation. I think that that my starting point is not my end point. My starting point is Barry's starting point. Kula Shali. It's all mine. Of course it's all mine. It's more Judean Samaria is more mine than Ashdod and Ashkelon, which were which was Eretz Plishtim. Uh-huh. So so that's for me that's not an argument. And what I say in the book is that if there ever is going to be real real talks, real peace talks with our neighbors, which we haven't had until now, the starting point has to be right-wing. The starting point is you sit down at the table, you're facing Palestinian negotiators who say without any apology, it's all mine, I'm giving up 79% of, of historic Palestine for a West Bank Gaza state, right? That's what they say. All right. So I want my negotiators to say the same thing. It's all mine. But as we say in Hebrew, malasot, what can you do? There's another people sitting in this land. I don't want to rule them forever. It, I, and I certainly don't want them in the Knesset. I don't want 40 plus percent of the Israeli population to be Palestinian. This will not be a governable country. And so, belet berera, without, with, with no alternative, I'm ready to cut what belongs, what, what, I'm ready to amputate part of my body, because that's what this is. And what the big mistake that the Israeli left has made is saying it's not ours. So it's not yours. What, you're not giving, you're not giving right. up anything. What do you negotiate? You're just giving, you know, you're, you're, you're just giving back something that belongs to them. That's not my position. Um, wouldn't it be unfair, though, you just said there was no real peace negotiation. Wouldn't that be unfair to you know Prime Minister Shamir, who went to Madrid in 1988, and Oslo of the early 90s, and the White House lawn of September 1993? Look, Wouldn't it be unfair, the Rabin Arafat handshake under Clinton's uh, tutelage? Wouldn't that be unfair to say there's been no real attempt when, when to us it seems, right from this side of the perspective, that we really have made an effort to get to the table and I was start talking, talking? I was talking to someone who uh, has been uh, at the table for all most of those negotiations. Initials, please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just just the other day, and yeah. he and and he said to me the I line. Have a feeling I know who this is. He said okay. to me. He said to me the line that summed up the whole thing. Yeah. He said we were negotiating peace, and they were negotiating decolonialization. Right. Now, if one side thinks we're make, we we thought we're negotiating peace because we're not colonialists. We have a claim here. You have a claim. We have a claim. Let's try to make peace. But if the other side says, no, no, you don't have a claim. Only we have a claim. And we're just here to negotiate how to turn this into 
post-apartheid South Africa. Look, what did mm-hmm. Arafat used to say? Arafat always used to say, I'm waiting for my de Klerk. Mm-hmm. What did de Klerk do? Mm-hmm. He dismantled the country. South Africa. Right. That's what Arafat was looking for. Right. And, and, so, and he the, almost had and, it. And, and, he and almost had it in Ehud Barak. He, he al- almost had it. Yeah, well, Barack made the offer. Well, yeah, exactly. Arafat himself blew it. So, you know, so look, my 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 position is, I would say, the position of 60% of Israelis, which is if there was a chance for a real deal, if we had a real partner, then I would be willing with all the pain to to make those concessions right. for a real peace that's le- that brings us legitimacy. But we're not there. Right. So it's all theoretical. Understood. And in the, in in the absence of a chance for peace, I want to start having conversations with Palestinians. Right. Understood. From the ground up, so to speak. From the ground up. Um should I guess on the air or off the air who that person was from the uh, negotiators? Oh, we'll do it off, off the air. We'll do it off, off. the air. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have actually two people in mind. We'll see if I'm right. Um and, and you alluded earlier, you mentioned the 1978 change. In Israeli government. 77? 77 would be more accurate. 1977 changed in Israeli government. All right, Barry, where were you in 1977? 1977? I can't remember where I was. Begin, <laughs> Begin wins. Where are you? Oh, in New York. You were in New York from Begin wins? celebrating like a lunatic. Correct. I mean, that was one of the was most political blunders. That was unbelievable. That was a that was Rabin's political blunder, basically, right? In in terms of the third party being formed. When Rabin was prime minister the first time. Correct. And, yeah. then, and then he... I don't know. Well, you know, you know, after after twenty nine years and right. and twenty years before that, right. it was time it was for a democratic right. change. Understood, but it also. Ha- I'm, what I'm, all I'm saying is, it happened because of strange circumstances. Yeah. It's not yeah. like it happened because the right. electorate, you know, all of a sudden, you know, went went, went to one side over another. Well, it's it's the it Miz- was, it, there was the revolt of the Mizrahim right. of the next generation. There was the belated response to the Yom Kippur War. Right. There was the corruption and labor. And there was the fact that it was time for a, you know. Would any of this be different if uh, Lee couldn't have moved into prominently the you know the most important position for the last forty years? Would any of this be different? Yeah. Let's say we would have a labor labor government. Like, you know, different. my 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 um, scenario for for how how an eventual peace agreement will happen if there's ever going to be one, if there'll ever be a chance, it's only going to come from the right. Right. It's going to be a pragmatic right-winger who will say, uh, it's ours, but I have to save the state of Israel. And if saving the state of Israel means giving up parts of the land of Israel, then I have to do that. How many books have you written? Four. And if one would uh, pick up one of them, which would be the one you'd recommend? Well, the latest one will is uh, is 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 the shortest. So <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> there's an incentive. <laughs> That's an incentive right there. <laughs> I pick up the shortest. The, like Dreamers, the one before that was the longest. You know, you know your like Dreamers book, just based on the title, Israeli paratroopers reunite Jerusalem, divide a nation. It is interesting to me that paratroopers are viewed completely as a separate entity when it comes to. Uh, the military, when it comes right. to, you know... They used to be. The truth is that they've lost a lot of their stature. But in 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 1967, it was the paratroopers and the rest of the army. They're the Marines of Israel, basically, yeah. in yeah. terms of but the way not, the public but, views but them. Not but not anymore. anymore. No, Golani right. is, Golani's uh, got you the, know, there, there's a big competition between Sarah Golani Michael. and, and Sanchanim. And, yeah. and, and that book focuses on their role 
in the war, right? That 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 they essentially what won the war yeah. or no? Well, well, the book really is 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 an attempt to tell the story of the fifty year debate between the Israeli left and the right through seven paratroopers who fought in Jerusalem, uh-huh. and so I chose four kibbutzniks and three future settlers. Right. So not necessarily, obviously, from the same war, the same era. Obviously, but we're talking about no, different times. No, no, no. But these were seven people who fought in Jerusalem right. together, Correct. and they were friends. And then they became political enemies, but they stayed friends. So they did fight in the same way. Oh, yeah. They fought in Jerusalem in 67. They crossed the canal together in 73. And they were in Lebanon together in 82. The same guys. And so the book is really an attempt to tell a history of Israel in a way that's not a history book, but is is a story. Of these seven amazing guys. Are there seven different political opinions? Every one of them is different, including that the settlers argue among themselves and the left-wingers argue among themselves. It's a, it's, so you really see the, the nuance in, in this argument. And, and you know one of the things that really troubles me when I go back to America to, to speak and I speak to groups is how much of the Israeli nuance gets lost abroad. And abroad, you're either, you know, uh, Hebron now and forever, or peace now, or further left. And here, a majority of Israelis, I would consider centrist, which means they're hawkish, they're, they're unapologetic about the land of Israel belonging to us, but under certain circumstances, they're ready to make a deal. And, and that's a majority of this country. When I go to the States, I don't find those people. At least not, they're not organized. And, and you know, and, and I, I'm, I, I find that I go into a time warp when I go to American Jewry. When I speak in Orthodox and right-wing communities, they're behind it's, the times. it's the 1980s. Right. You know, and Begin or Shamir are still prime minister. And the first intifada hasn't happened yet. And no problem. We can absorb, you know, three million Palestinians. Five, no problem. And then when I go speak in, in, in liberal Jewish communities, it's the 90s. It's the Oslo years. And the second intifada hasn't happened, as if we didn't try to, to, to create a Palestinian state and as if it didn't blow up in our faces. And, and so most Israelis, aren't, aren't, or a majority of Israelis, are not in the 80s and not in the 90s anymore. We're living after the first intifada, which showed us the limits of, of, of Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, and we're after the second intifada, which showed us the limits of peace now. And, and in America, it's still a debate between Eretz Yisrael HaShlema and peace now. Brilliant analysis. So. Brilliant analysis. Well, I mentioned to you earlier that I would... Uh, it just happens to be wrong. Big car training. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned to you earlier... But I want to say something. Actually, there's something else about the Beitar training, which is exactly oh. right. And, and that is, what I learned in Beitar is no illusions. You face the reality of the Jewish people as it is. The greatness of Jabotinsky was that everyone else was living in illusions. Right. And Jabotinsky said, es brent a fire. So it's burning, right. it's coming. And everybody laughed at him or called him a fascist. And, and, and what, what, what we learned in Beitar is whatever the reality is, as difficult as it is, you face it. And what troubles me today 
about the ideological left and right is that they are selective in their in, in how they face reality. The left wants to pretend that we can make peace with a Palestinian national movement that doesn't accept our our right to exist. It's the only conflict in the world where one side has to has to negotiate its its right to exist. That's not a starting point. That's the end point. That's what we get at the end of the negotiations. You know, and the other side of it, the right, uh, is denying is denying the, what what it means to be to be ruling over a civilian population that doesn't want us and that we don't want as part of our society. Right. And both sides are living in a kind of illusion where ideology uh, is 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 trumping reality. I've had a lot of on-air conversations. This has been one of my favorites. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks Jesse so Klein, Halevi, a real honor. Really a, a real pleasure. Honor. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Continue your amazing work. That was my uh, conversation with Jesse Klein, Halevi, during our recent visit to Israel. Ohel uh, incoming co-president Jay Kestenbaum and Ohel outgoing president and soon-to-be president emeritus Mike Hellman were recently in our studio here at JM and the AM. The big dinner is coming up this Sunday, the 11th of November. The Ohel dinner is always amazing, and these two gentlemen... Uh, describe why everyone should be there on the 11th of November. Here's my conversation with both Jay Kestenbaum and Mike Holman on this edition of JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. How many times have I said that if you're going to go to one or two or maybe three dinners a year, you must, must, must make sure to be at the OHEL annual gala? Why do I say that? Because it's one of the most inspiring nights of the year. I've been saying this for about a quarter of a century, frankly, that if you're really going to you know, be one of those people that avoids dinners and doesn't want to be at these dinners in the Jewish world, uh, you must make an exception for the Ohel dinner. It's a, an inspiring evening and one of uh, incredible community togetherness. And this year, Ohel's 49th annual gala, uh, slated for Sunday, November the 11th, is going to be happening at the Sheraton New York Times Square Hotel. They'll do a buffet dinner and then start the program at 6.30, uh, David Brescher is going to chair the dinner. There are many uh, distinguished co-chairs, of course. They will celebrate the life and legacy of Harvey Cayley of blessed memory and, of course, his wonderful wife, Gloria Cayley. She should live and be well. They'll inaugurate the Harvey and Gloria Cayley Community Impact Award uh, for that evening. Uh, they'll honor Linda and Ellie Gottlieb. They'll honor Jenny and Barry Horowitz, and they will celebrate the installation of one of our special guests in our studio this morning and have a testimonial to another one of our special guests in our studio this morning. I refer, of course, to Jay Kestenbaum first, who is becoming co-president of OHEL with the wonderful Mel Zachter, and Maisha Hellman, who will be president emeritus and ombudsman of OHEL in recognition of his uh, 26th, that's uh, uh, Shem Hashem, 26 years of service as OHEL's president. It's with great pleasure and a wonderful honor for me to welcome both Jay Kestenbaum and Maisha Hellman into our studio on this Tuesday morning. Gentlemen, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Nachman. A pleasure to have you here. Uh, Maisha, uh, I mean, this, is, uh, th- this must be a very, very interesting transition for you because you have been such an incredible, effective member of the OHEL Presidium. And I was glad to see that even though uh, Jay is essentially, I guess you would say, taking your place now in this partnership with Mel, nonetheless, it seems from the title that you still will, thank God, be involved and very concerned on a daily basis regarding what's going on at OHEL. That is correct. And uh, my uh, stepping aside, not stepping down, right. <laughs> uh, as co-president with, as you said, the wonderful Mel Zachter, 
uh, is something that I myself initiated. I felt that 26 years is uh, is enough, and uh, an organization uh, shows its strength by by the continuity of someone else taking over. And it's rare that you have the opportunity that someone like a Jay Kestenbaum, and I say it behind his back, in front of his face, doesn't matter where, uh, it's rare that you have someone who is respected by each and every one that comes in contact with. His friends love him. I, thank God, got to know him through Ohel. did not know him before. Uh, as a bonus, I got to know his father very well, Stark. And I can tell you that Oel is is really very, very lucky to have a Jay Kestebaum become co-president with Mel Zach. Well, I am in full agreement with you. Uh, it, it, we cannot overstate how incredible a man Jay Kestebaum is. The only thing I will say is that there are probably people walking over to Jay asking him, what were you thinking? Do you really want to be president of one of the most incredibly large and incredibly influential organizations in the Jewish world. And your answer to them has been, Jay. Well, it's, it's, I have to tell you something. Nachum, uh, you know, you, you have big shoes, but I have to tell you <laughs> that Moish Hellman has much bigger shoes. He certainly And does. Uh, when people say about stepping in and filling shoes, there is no way possible I could even come close to, uh, to replicating or, or, or looking at the accomplishments that Moish Hellman and Mel Zachter have done for OHEL in uh, the 26 years they've been involved. And uh, really, my, my task is really, uh, you know, people come in and say, all right, so what are you going to do next? And uh, I, I believe, and I've said this to the staff in the meeting, um, my job is to make sure not to mess up anything that Moish Hellman um, and Mel Zachter and his team have done so in the last 26 years. So that's your agenda. Your agenda that, is to just keep advancing what they've already that, that is not That is not an easy agenda that's for a $68 million organization wow. who, that does the kind of services it does in so many areas for OHEL. For sure. It's well known that you're involved in a lot of causes. What were the first days for you with OHEL? How long ago did you get involved and why? Well, coincidentally, 26 years ago, or a little more than that, I was brought in by a good friend of mine, Fred Schulman, when uh, he and his family dedicated the uh, Milton and Molly Schulman foster care program. Mm. And um, I knew nothing. elements of OHEL. Correct. And I knew nothing about OHEL. I was brought to the first board meeting. And I was blown away by the dedication of the lay leaders in the board. Typically, organizations, you have a board meeting, you have three, four, five people, and the only people who really run everything are there. In OHEL, the typical board meeting has between 25 and 30 people minimum, which is absolutely incredible of people who take their time morning, night, and constant phone calls all week long to dedicate themselves. I was really amazed at how involved the lay leaders were, which is extremely unusual. You know, it's funny because when people ask me about the success of the organization, for years I've used the expression an active board, but you make such a good point. It's not just active, it's large. It's a lot of people doing this work, and if anybody's familiar with organizations, Jewish or not, to have this large and active board is the exception. It's the exception. So to see lay leadership repeat and come back time after time to be involved in all these cases that are presented to you and all these situations and decisions that have to be made is simply unbelievable. And, Mike, you've seen this obviously up close and personal as you lead that board. I've seen it. I became president after uh, Max Wasser's Zechrenelavrocha, uh, asked me to step in, and um, I had a good Rebbe. I really did. The, uh, he was wonderful. Integrity. 
um, and really ran the organization through the board. It, it wasn't about him at all. And we're, we're, we're very fortunate that we have a David Mandel right. as a CEO of the organization. He's with us, I believe, 23 years and it's been 23 wonderful years. Um, he's he's just run the organization, believe on Nefesh. Marsh Hellman and Jay Kestenbaum are here. But, but, and I, I don't mean to sidetrack, but just for a second, it, it's such an important point that a large active board is one of the reasons for the success of the organization. Why does a board member show up? What is it about those meetings, as opposed to so many other organizations that can't gather a quorum of people, what is it about those meetings that attracts a regular Bala bus to come, and it's usually early in the morning, right? Am I right? That they're very often early Sometimes in the morning. Sometimes early or at night. To come, or late at night, to come and to be part of those meetings. What is it? Well, there's enthusiasm. There's, there's a lot of interest in an organization that's not stagnant. The one thing about OHEL, the number of programs that have been started during uh, Moshe's tenure is, is incredible. Uh, the expansion of services is, in, is incredible. It's clearly not an organization that does one thing and doesn't touch anything else. It tries to fill all the needs of the Jewish community on a daily basis. I mean, one of the examples is right now with the trauma right. uh, counseling that it's doing, uh, offering to help in the Pittsburgh situation. Just yesterday, um, uh, Dr. Norman Blumenthal, who's the head of our trauma unit, um, was counseling in Wanakue, New Jersey, in the school where nine, in the community where right. nine children died in a facility um, with immune uh, deficiency disorders. And uh, the counseling that they do, the expansion of services through Lifetime Care Foundation, the starting of Camp Cayley, it's, it's a board that has seen change and has seen um, areas where the community needs services and OHEL comes to the forefront to expand and provide those services. And you need a, a very active, good lay board leadership in order to think through, to plan out, and to make sure all these services are done well. And I hope this wasn't lost on the audience as you just uh, said that list. But add to it the residences, the right. foster care. I mean, right. we're talking about we're talking about active. We're talking about really strong departments yes. that are doing incredible work. And I have the privilege, and, and many others do, of seeing it. On a regular basis, you know that the OHEL residence right here is something right here, very important sure. to us. If I could chime in sure. and, and answer that uh, question, the board members also see that they have ownership of the organization. Right. They have and they don't. Uh, I, if I'm the uh, Mel and I are the highest uh, uh, right. officers of right. the organization, I mentioned at the last board meeting, there was a pen in front of me. And I said, you know that I can't even take this pen home. It's not mine. Right. It doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs. We are the caretakers for Claudius Rule. That's right. what we we do. And I believe that that's what the board members feel. So you always say that OHEL is Claudius Rule's organization. That's but correct. in a way, and take this the right way, it it, it is Mike Hellman's organization. It's Jake Kessman's. Meaning, as you said, you feel a a bias over it. You feel that you're active, actually accomplishing things by being involved with it. But so does every board Correct, member. Correct, right. It's theirs also, every right. single board member. Mike Shalman and Jay Kestenbaum are here. I say every year, if you're going to go to one dinner, and both of you know how trying dinners can be sometimes, right? But I always say, if you're going to go to one or two dinners a year, make this one of them, because that program, an hour, an hour and a half, whatever length it is, is one of the most inspiring sessions for the Jewish community of the entire year. You agree with that, Mosh? I absolutely do. I um, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> I'm not crazy about going to many dinners. Uh, but um, There's something the old, about this one, though. <laughs> I always came to the old dinner. Someone, uh, I, 
I was trying to remember now the first dinner that I went to. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who, whose father was involved in oil asked me to come to a dinner. We need some. We need someone to fill the tables. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. were you were a filler. <laughs> I was a filler, uh, and um, I I kept being. I I think I've been a filler now for the past forty six years. <laughs> Still filling that dinner table. Um, information, everybody out there, to place your reservations and to be there on the night of November the eleventh at the Sheraton New York. Times Square Hotel, go to ohelgala.org or ohelfamily.org or dial 718-972-9338, 718-972-9338. That night, in addition to the honorees that we mentioned, uh, Maish will become the uh, president emeritus and Jay Kesterman will step in as co-president, uh, joining Mel Zachter in the uh, effort. Now, Jay just mentioned a moment ago that as a perfect example, th- this is one of those weeks where Ohel's work, beyond all the things we mentioned, beyond the foster care, the residences, the the, the, the things going on every single day with the thousands of staff and volunteers, uh, where where the community benefits really nationwide uh, from their work. You mentioned that um, because of what happened in Pittsburgh, um, both Dr. Norman Blumenthal, who is the Zachter Family Chair in Trauma and Bereavement, and his staff have been in touch directly with everybody in Pittsburgh. They're providing consultation in the schools there in Pittsburgh, uh, and they're going to be obviously in touch with everybody there, not just over the next few days, but over the next few months, I would assume. Correct, correct. To do whatever is necessary. Plus, OHEL's guidelines and recommendations to adults and children in the wake of the Pittsburgh tragedy has already been sent to tens of thousands of people. The organization is so organized, they don't just offer help and ask people to go out and speak. They have a they have printed material to help people, educators, parents, etc., with all of this, which is, and I you know, based on the information we have, this has already been distributed in the tens of thousands out Correct. there. Correct. And we should mention, by the way, that this is not only important for Pittsburgh. It's important for kids, families, and schools around the entire country who no Correct. doubt are focused on safety and security at this time. Correct. So that's and, something we have to mention. And, and Nachum, these, these events, even though they're sometimes, unfortunately, off the front page of the paper in a day or two, right. um, the communities and the people touched by them suffer their whole lives. And OHEL provides that counseling and instruction, um, not only for the community, but especially now with social media, um, the whole world and all the children in every school in the United States are going to hear about this and be afraid to go to school no or question. be afraid to uh, walk outside or go to shul. Right. And uh, th- this has effects all across the whole uh, whole country. And if, and both of you know of cases right now where OHEL's involvement started months and probably years ago that are still on the ground in certain places. Unfortunately, there's so many tragedies that occur, uh, and they're still there consulting with teachers, principals, parents, community leaders, etc. So that should be mentioned as well. Right, and we'll also be here as an organization, especially in five months when PTSD occurs and when right. all the aftermath of uh, these kind of tragic events happen, as we've seen all across the country. Because when things settle down, that's when very often the people really involved or on the front line start to get affected even more so. You mentioned Wanakew, and I, I don't know how many people in this audience are following the news story, but unfortunately this is a facility in New Jersey uh, for very sick children with these low uh, immune deficiency disorders. And they, unfortunately, almost every day we're hearing of more deaths right. in the facility. OHEL stepped in to help the staff deal with all this down there. Correct, correct. Dr. Pretty Dr. amazing. Norman Blumenthal and, and his staff uh, um, went to speak to uh, provide trauma, bereavement, and uh, crisis counseling for the staff. 
And uh, these situations which uh, people don't hear about and they figure it's somewhere else, uh, but we're called on to provide those services to so many uh, communities. And then not that there wasn't enough last week, but uh, we heard about this uh, school bus crash on Friday, which uh, affected students, and uh, that that was from one of the yeshivas. And um, again, oh, hell on the spot there to help everybody with whatever was necessary. So these, these, I think what you need to add is not only there for the day of right. or day after, but for weeks and months after. We continue, we, we stick with it. Um, as, um, as Jade mentioned, PTSD, it, it doesn't happen till later. Right. And uh, we, we're, we're there with it. See, this is the problem when all your stuff has to be confidential. <laughs> because as I said to Jay a moment ago, the you both could probably tell us right now of situations that started months ago that you still have your staff dealing with today. But unfortunately or fortunately, to be honest, because all these things are kept confidential and we're not, you know, here to discuss specific situations, uh, you know, uh, very often. I've got to correct that. you. We it's so confidential. Board members are not supposed to know and they don't. In other words, you're we presented don't... with situations without names. We... We are presented with situations without names. So much so, I'll tell you something. When there's a vacant bed and there are 100 people on the list and let's say 10 have been vetted already, and who gets that bed? The first one on the list, uh, the most in need. We, so we have, a, we have an admitting committee. Right. So we sit down and we don't hear names. We don't see names. We just see a little bit of a history of who this person is, and it says A, B, C, D. We have to choose between A, B, C, D. Of course, we listen to the recommendation sure. of professionals, but we decide that and based on, on, on numbers, not based on names. It's confidential. I don't know, nine-tenths of, of nine-tenths, 99% of, of, of anything that uh, uh, individual cases that go on in OLA. Nor am I supposed to know. It's one of the secrets of staying number one, right? That's right. It's, 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 uh, it, it's ethical. That's the way it's Correct. supposed to be. And we should mention that there are people, rightfully so, government, etc., who are always examining what organizations like yours are doing. And as I've said to you a million times, it's amazing that this one, which is such a pride and joy of the Jewish world, continues to be number one in the state. And it's a very hard position to maintain. You know, when you're number two or number three, then there's somewhere to go. When, when, there's somewhere to go up. When you're number one, there's only one place to go. And to maintain that number one status is very difficult. So right. that's a tremendous uh, – uh, tr- it gives us a tremendous amount of pride in the Jewish community. You know, we, 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 mentioned the, we have to mention the honorees. Uh, aside from, from Jay and Maish being recognized that night and the change being made uh, to the Presidium of Ohel, which will now going forward officially be Jay – and the Jay Kestenbaum and Al Zachter. We should mention Linda and Ellie Gottlieb. They're being recognized as the Native Lave Awardees that night. And Jenny and Barry Horowitz, Professional Leadership Awardees. These are, again, people who are in a position that you were in years ago where they're starting to get more and more involved with the organization and take an active role, and they should be recognized. Barry Horowitz used to work for OHEL. Um, just a, a wonderful, wonderful person. I uh, I kept up with him over the years. Um and um, it's, it's he he deserves it for many reasons. Right. He's so hands on, and now he's in private practice, and just a wonderful individual. And uh, Mr. Gottlieb, I just I don't know him that well, but I hear that he's uh, 
Just a wonderful person. So the Gottliebs and the Horowitzes are being recognized, and both of you can speak probably for hours about the uh, involvement of Gloria and Harvey Cayley, Harvey of blessed memory, of course. I mean, he, he, he went from a small introduction to the OHEL organization, right? Very small introduction decades ago to becoming an unbelievable supporter, to having one of the landmark uh, overnight camps in the Jewish community named for him. Do you know how he was introduced to OHEL? <laughs> I do, and it's an unbelievable story. That's, that's why I say it, it, he had got introduced on a very limited, cursory basis, if I'm not mistaken, for some Hanukkah celebration happening at OHEL. He provided some toys for the kids. Am I but, correct? But, that's in, how it started? but initially there was Elaine Schickman, Right, uh, who we've spoken to many times right. over here. <laughs> so they, they have adopted. They've adopted five children. Correct. Uh, of through Ohel, right? And um, they live in the Hamptons, and they uh, they daven, They came to shul Shabbos, and all of a sudden there are five kids. Right. And Harvey came to shul, and he says, "Where did you get these kids from? <laughs> Where would anyway, they come from?" Initially, <laughs> they took them in as foster children, right? And uh, and he said, "Really? This there's an organization that does this. They they they." Uh, provide foster care for these children and then they see i want to be involved in an organization like this and the rest is history the rest is history and it went from again like i say participating in that hanukkah celebration hanukkah, i believe they came, came to, to becoming the <laughs> to becoming what we know as one of the main supporters of this great cause i could tell you the, the one thing that harvey said last at the last uh, dinner the, at the last camp kaylee uh, we have a sunday a Sunday right. uh, celebration of Harvey, Zechron uh, Rucha and his wife, Gloria should be well, uh, where Harvey said he was, he had, uh, unfortunately with diabetes, he had lost both legs. Right. And he got up on his prosthesis and he said, girls, remember I stood here at the same spot last year? There's one difference. That last year I stood on my own two legs. This year I'm standing on not my two legs, right. but on prosthesis. But tell me, am I a different person? I don't think I am. I have a problem. I have to deal with it. But I'm the same person. We all have problems. We're gonna deal with it. I thought that was that, that left, great message. That that message left such an impression on me. Great message. And and they always say that uh, Camp Cayley was their best investment they ever made. Right. For someone who is as successful <laughs> right. as the Cayleys in business, that's an incredible thing. I saw Gloria in the Hamptons, ironically enough, this summer, and the Schickmans, who I continue to tell them, you know, are legends here because of what they did. It's not just five foster children. It's five. They 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 had five foster children, all related, brothers and sisters, siblings. Brothers and sisters. And whenever I say to them, and whenever I laud them for this incredible example that they've given all of us, they always say, what choice did we have? The kids wanted to be together. Like, you know, they, they treated like, you know, like anybody would do that. Uh, not to minimize the foster parents out there. You have some incredible people that we've met over the decades that have really changed the lives of, of children. Those children have changed the lives to the better of their own families, the ones that uh, act as foster families. Uh, but this was an exception. This was, you know, the Shikmins are uh, actually a real exception to all Sadiqim, of this. Sadiqim. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, I also wanted to mention, in addition to reminding everybody about getting your reservations in for the OL 49th Annual Gala, OHEL and the Center for Anxiety uh, presents a uh, program tonight at the OHEL Jaffa Family Campus in the Zachter Training Room where Dr. Norman Blumenthal, Rabbi uh, Ron Yitzchak Eisenman, and Dr. David uh, Rosemarin, who's been a guest of ours many times, will discuss anxiety striving for peace of mind in a complex world. It's all happening at the Ohel Jaffa Family Campus in Brooklyn on East 14th Street tonight, beginning at 7.30. You can go to ohelfamily.org 
for information. I assume that the campus is just as beautiful as it was the day of its uh, installation or inauguration a few weeks ago. Magnificent facility. And, and I have to tell you, Nachum, um, that the, the training that OL offers to so many other professionals, lay leaders, and just general community to understand things like anxiety, which which is now first starting in many organizations to be recognized as one of the biggest illnesses uh, these days, um, which is very often not not visible and can't be easily seen, but uh, the, the the problems of suicide in so many communities and the problems of drug abuse have all stemmed from anxiety. OHEL is addressing it full blast, and uh, the training that it does and offers the community openly rather than just focusing internally on expanding the organization just to teach other people in the community and, uh, and professionals about what to look for and the signs is just incredible. It is so hard to be good at so many things. It's really hard. In fact, I was discussing with someone at, around the time of the celebration at the Jaffa campus that, that I think one of the difficulties is, is actually convincing the Jewish community that you could be this good at so many different things. Because obviously organizations specialize you know, in one or two things usually. But all the things we mentioned this morning, there are, all of them, thank God, are going so well have become really solid programs in the Jewish community. It's amazing that all this could happen at the same time under one roof. Yeah, and and uh, we were innovators in a, in, a, in a lot of areas where that we started. Um, I remember people came over to me, ah, we don't have that in Klai Yisrael. It's not, right. it, it's not a, you do and face it. Face it is right. Yeah. Uh, everyone has an opportunity to support the great work of OHEL. I hope you'll be there November the 11th. It's always an inspiring and great evening. Go to ohelgala.org, ohelgala.org, or ohelfamily.org, or place your reservation by phone by dialing 718-972-9338, 718-972-9338. In addition to the Cayley family, the Horowitz family, the Gottlieb family, Jay Kestenbaum will celebrate, uh, we'll, we will celebrate his installation as co-president of OHEL with the Mel Zachter, and Maisha Hellman will be uh, installed as president Emeritus in a, uh, an appropriate testimonial recognizing his 26 years serving as OHEL's president. But as you said, Mish, thank God you will continue to be involved. You are not, you're not moving on. You're not riding off into the sunset. You'll still be there for OHEL and its clients whenever We're necessary. not letting him go anywhere. <laughs> Jay, Jay's panicking that you, <laughs> that you may ride off into the sunset. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not riding off into the sunset. I'm going to be ombudsman, which is something that I love to do which uh, people who come to Ohel don't come to book a Sheva Brachas or a Bar Mitzvah. They come because they have probably what is the biggest problem in their life. Right. And sometimes they need someone to talk to. And they uh, need help immediately. Yeah. Uh, and not being a professional, but being someone that I believe I could somewhat feel the heart of my brother and my sister. And I, um, that's what I would like to do uh, in continuation of my uh, involvement in OHEL. Well, there you go. And Jay, you have an amazing partner coming up. Mel has been uh, probably the first person to introduce OHEL to us. During the, I, always say, I always say this. Mel came to us over 30 years ago during an emergency, um, uh, an emergency foster parent situation where there just weren't enough foster parents in our community, as we know, when OHEL has an opportunity to place somebody, they can go into a Jewish home, et cetera, et cetera, and they just weren't enough people. And that was our first introduction to the work of OHEL, and it has just become, like I said, this unbelievable conglomerate of so many different things going on in the Jewish world. And this week, as we said earlier, is a perfect example. Uh, so I wish you the best of luck. This is going to be this is going to be quite a ride.
in a way, you must think like you've learned so much from Maish, and now you get to be next to Mel and learn, you know, the ropes from him. Constant learning, constant learning. This is what not a you, job that you that you learn well and you know how to do. You have to keep learning because the world keeps changing. And the truth is that that's really why OHEL has added so many programs. The world is not stagnant. And it's not simple anymore. And the anymore. needs keep expanding. Yeah, no question about it. Is there a way for someone who's listening who wants to become a board member to check it out or the board is sold out at this point? Absolutely If not. someone wants to get involved, they can? Yes. To that level? Yes, yes. Just absolutely. contact you or the people at OHO? Contact me this week, next week, Jay. <laughs> no. Contact, contact any, anyone anyone on the board or management OHEL for sure. Um, we welcome uh, inclusion of anyone who wants to uh, help us uh, and help the Jewish community. And the best way to learn more about this team is to be at the dinner. Yes, for and sure. And you'll see exactly what they do. Somehow... In 60 minutes, they're able to sum up everything they do, which is pretty remarkable. Um, enjoy the dinner on November the 11th, ohelgala.org and 718-972-9338. We will see you there. And don't forget, tonight at the Ohel Jaffa Family Campus on East 14th Street in the Zachter Training Room, you have an amazing lineup. Dr. Norman Blumenthal, Rabbi Aran Yitzchak Eisenman, and Dr. David Ross Marin, all addressing the age of anxiety, striving for peace of mind in a complex world. Go to the ohelfamily.org website for more information. Uh, I say mazel tov to both of you. Maisha Hellman, Jay Kestenbaum, we will see you the 11th, please God, and continue your amazing work. There's a, a, yet another important week for the Jewish world that Ohel has been there uh, to help out, and I know that it's going to continue for a long, long time beyond this week. Yep. So thank, thank you, you very Nachum. much. Thank, thank you, Nachum. Thank you. Thank see you, you there. Thank you being so warm to, to all organizations, but this is there is a special place in my heart for Ohel, and I hope people heed my advice. One dinner, two dinners a year. You like to limit yourself when it comes to Jewish gatherings. Make sure to be at this one. Ohelfamily.org. That was my conversation with Jay Kestenbaum and Mike Hellman in advance of the October, excuse me, November 11th dinner. Uh, the NYPD chief, the highest-ranking uniformed officer in the New York City Police Department, Chief Terry Monahan joined us this past Friday as we tried to uh, get a perspective on the police and their angle regarding safety and security as all of us were heading back uh, to shul on Shabbos, a Shabbos that um, uh, we were encouraging people around the country to make sure to be in shul in the wake of the massacre the previous Shabbat in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. NYPD Chief Terry Monahan on this week's edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. JM in the AM. Solomon Brothers with Shoshana here on a JM in the AM Friday morning. It's Erev Shabbos. We're encouraging everybody show up for Shabbat. We're encouraging everybody in the aftermath of last Shabbos's massacre in Pittsburgh. And again, we are just back from Pittsburgh late last night. I want to thank everybody who was tuned in and who felt we uh, represented the the Jewish people worldwide, uh, well over uh, those 24 hours. Uh, we tried to convey a spirit of unity, of brotherhood, of solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Pittsburgh, and I'm glad we are able to do that. Uh, we say show up for Shabbat, encouraging everybody to be there. And uh, I spoke with my friend uh, Shalom Eisner earlier in the week, and I said, is there somebody, is there somebody from the New York City Police Department who could jump on the air with us and uh, give us an important message about heading to shul this Shabbos and give us an important message about how precincts, not just in New York, but across the country, are certainly aware and are certainly going to be doing everything in their power to protect houses of worship 
so that we can continue to take full advantage of this amazing aspect of the United States of America, which is freedom of religion. And Shulam said to me that uh, Chief Monaghan is certainly somebody who can convey that message. And uh, Chief Terrence Terry Monaghan is chief of the department of the New York City Police. And uh, in this uh, position, he supervises uniformed police commanders. To put it simply, he is the highest-ranking uniformed officer in the NYPD. Chief Monaghan, an honor to have you here at JM in the AM. Good morning. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. I appreciate that. We're just back from Pittsburgh, as you know. Tell me how proud you are of your colleagues in Pittsburgh and, frankly, those from New York and other areas who assisted and and were running into the building to help save lives last Shabbos morning. I know uh, Chief Scott Schubert very well. I was actually at a training thing with him not that long ago. He's an excellent man. The men and women in Pittsburgh, what they did, they do what law enforcement does around the country. They run towards the danger to save lives, and that's what they did. I couldn't couldn't be prouder to be a cop uh, knowing what they did that day. And here in this city, uh, as soon as that incident occurred, we knew we had to react because it's important for us to make sure people feel safe, that people can go go and worship in peace and not have a fear that something is going to happen. So we, we assigned offices out immediately to every synagogue around the city. Uh, we put heavy weapons at, at some of them, but we wanted everyone to understand that they can go and they can worship. In this city, we're going to make sure that they stay safe and that they feel comfortable walking into a synagogue. So as we go into Shabbat again this weekend, we'll have coverage out there. Everyone should feel safe going in. Everyone should know that they can practice their religion, no matter what it is, in safety and security. Uh, Chief Monaghan is with us. I thank you for that. You know, we I'm, I'm a Manhattan resident, as you know, and we, we felt that security and added security last uh, Shabbos afternoon. And as you just indicated, thank God we'll feel it again uh, tonight and tomorrow. Uh, in addition to the pride um, in which you, which you take in your colleagues out in Pittsburgh, uh, we should also note that the NYPD is at the forefront of so many of these exercises and and training drills and, and procedures uh, that are practiced over and over and over and that you guys pray will never have to be used. Absolutely. Listen, it's something that we do. We've adjusted. We have to look at what goes around the world. Uh, That's why we have so many more heavy weapon teams out there. We saw what happened in France uh, a few years back. So we put heavy weapon guys out throughout the city that can respond immediately. We hope that we never have to run in for an active shooter, but we train. All of our personnel have been trained in active shooters. We know that there is no time to wait. We have to do exactly what they did in Pittsburgh, go in and run towards a gunfire. Chief, is there a uh, a message to the synagogue presidents, to the rabbis in uh, both our city and around the country? Because as you know, people all over are listening to this show right now. Is, is there a message, a general message about safety and security that you can that you can give the leaders of our religious institutions as they try to move forward and protect everybody as best as possible? That law enforcement is always going to be there, working hand-in-hand with everyone to make sure that they remain safe. Don't don't live in fear. There is no reason to be fear. Don't let one person who did an act of terror influence the way that you're going to worship, make you fear worshiping. Do about what you do. Do Go about your lives the way you normally would, and just be assured that the police department is going to be there. Does the NYPD want to see... 
our institutions step up a little bit when it comes to security? Do you want to see us, I don't know, implement uh, e- either new innovations or, or things that, frankly, have not been implemented yet in synagogues and schools around the city? You may... <laughs> We always have to relook how we do our security, and we'll work hand-in-hand with you to take a look at each and every synagogue or school and see what needs to be done. We should always be cognizant that stuff could happen, but we should never live in fear, and we always got to try and change. As a police agency, we change daily. We look at what happens, and we have to come up with new ways of policing. So same thing with the synagogues. Always reevaluate your security. Uh, we're there to assist you in that reevaluation. But, again, never let fear take over. Chief um, Chief Monahan is with us, highest-ranking uniformed officer in the New York City Police Department. Um, I know you can't speak officially for your colleagues around the country, but as you just told us, the, the pride that you have in your colleagues in Pittsburgh, do you have confidence in your colleagues around the United States that it's not only the NYPD that's going to step up things this Shabbos, but in the aftermath of what happened in Pittsburgh, the likelihood is that all your colleagues around the country are going to be paying extra careful attention to what's happening in synagogues starting tonight? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I know many of the chiefs around the country, and they're tremendous individuals, and we all have the same focus. You know, whether it's New York, whether it's L.A., whether it's Chicago or anywhere in this in this country, our job, our mission in law enforcement is to keep people safe. And I'm sure they will be out there throughout the country ensuring that people can worship uh, in safety. Uh, Chief, not not to get too emotional, frankly, but you know that uh, both in our tradition, in our heritage, and in other faiths' heritages as well, there have been governments, the majority of them, one might argue, uh, that have discouraged freedom of religion and have cracked down when one tries uh, to observe uh, uh, something that the government doesn't approve of. Here, you know it's the exact opposite. And I must take this opportunity to thank you and all your colleagues, not just for being there to help protect the freedom of religion, but taking this job to the nth degree. Uh, As you mentioned, running into the building, putting your life in front of our lives. And frankly, in our history, the history of the Jewish people, it is rare that that's ever been done. So I say to you and to all the men and women that you command, God bless you and thank you. And tonight, when we head to synagogue here in Manhattan, and I'm sure in a lot of other areas in this country, we will be thinking of you and thanking the men and women you work with. Thank you very much, and we will be there for you, and we'll be always be there for you. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful Shabbos, Chief. You too. And Thank a, you. And a peaceful one and a safe one. Chief Terrence Monahan. he is the highest-ranking uniformed officer in the New York City Police Department, appointed by Commissioner O'Neill. Uh, this is the position Commissioner O'Neill held until he was commissioner. And um, I bless him, and I bless all of his colleagues, all of his officers, um, you heard the message. It, it's it, it's unfathomable. If our ancestors heard the highest-ranking police officer in the most major city in the world say what the chief just said, they would never believe it. Thank God we are in a place and surrounded by amazing people who are protecting us and who will sacrifice literally, and I mean this literally, we saw this last Shabbos, are literally ready to sacrifice their lives for us. And we thank them for that. And we should not forget that as we go to shul tonight and as we go to shul tomorrow all around the country. Thank these amazing officers. Yesterday, as you saw in the video, we had an opportunity to thank the officers in Pittsburgh. Uh, They were overwhelmed 
with the reaction from our community around the country. And, and it's still not enough. We still have to continue to thank them and, and all the police departments around this country. And, and my thanks to Shalom Eisner. I asked him earlier, and he knows everybody in the police department, and I asked him earlier in the week, I said, who would be an amazing representative to reassure our people that this is going to be a safe and secure Shabbos, please God. And he, of course, pointed to a Chief Monahan, and I thank him very much. That was my conversation with the NYPD Chief Terry Monahan from this past Friday, reassuring everybody about the safety and security in New York and other major cities in the United States. That does it for this week's edition of JM Rewind. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up. Keep it here on a uh, Tuesday as uh, we continue here at the Nahum Siegel Network.